This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. My guest is Benjamin Dean, who is the Director of Digital Assets for Wisdom Tree out of Europe, a sort of new hire for our team. Uh, Wisdom Tree Europe is is a part of Wisdom Tree Investments, our asset management company here in the U.S. under our, our control. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. The discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. Ben, thank you for joining me on Behind the Markets today. Welcome both to Wisdom Tree and to Behind the Markets. Thanks very much, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to be here. So you, you just uh, came onto our team within the last uh, few weeks. Tell us a little bit about your background, your, your, your sort of focus on crypto and, and how you got into the space at, at the beginning. Sure. Well, my background, the common thread really, is that I've always been interested in emerging technologies and the risks and opportunities created by technological change at an economic level, social level, financial level. And so monitoring the technology landscape for a number of years and being someone who's had the fortune of being able to travel to a lot of different countries to, to do this work, I came across Bitcoin in around 2013. I was doing some work in Venezuela and was confronted with a set of challenges, capital controls, hyperinflation, inefficient banks. And uh, I was looking around for solutions and came across this thing called Bitcoin, which was relatively new at the time. Uh, little known fact at the time, Venezuela had the most Blackberries per capita. And I thought to myself, geez, if we could put this thing on people's cell phones, that would really be something, not just for that country in particular at that time, but across the world in places faced with inefficient financial markets, capital controls, macroeconomic and political instability and so on. So since then, I've just continued to follow the interest, uh, tried to get as many projects as I could off the ground in a space where for many years there were a lot of doubters and it wasn't certain that it would grow to be what it is today. Perhaps the most pertinent piece of work for our discussion today is some work I did in 2017. Did some work with Coin Center based in Washington, D.C., but I visited 18 countries in 18 months with a question. Who is working on crypto? What are they doing? And why are they doing it? And that was an extremely... uh, That was a real learning experience for me personally, but also it gave me a glimpse into what was about to become the present day crypto. And I think in the course of our discussion today, you'll see that the things that I learned and the experience I got there really colors my perceptions in the market. And uh, hopefully I can share some insights uh, from that and all of my work since then with your listeners today. Well, what, what was it like traveling around? What was the mandate traveling around to 18 different countries? How, how, what was that like? Uh, exhausting is the first word that comes to mind. Uh, and we actually started, one of the questions was, well, Ben, what happens if you go to somewhere in the world and there's nobody who's working on crypto? And I found out very quickly, I visited countries in Europe, Africa, Asia, Latin America, and North America. So all the continents found in every single place I went that there was at least a small group of people who were meeting regularly because they were either interested in the technology, they were developing the software themselves, 
some of them were investing in it, but a lot of them were building companies to try and make the technology more usable and eventually kind of spur on this adoption that we've subsequently seen since then. Uh, a humbling experience is another one. There's so much that people don't know. One of the most fascinating things you'll find is to go around the world and see people using the exact same technology, but they use it in different ways because they have different problems. And uh, it's just fascinating to see how ingenuitive people can be uh, with the same tools faced with very different contexts. Well, it sounds like you first first started thinking about it in, in the Venezuela context, and then you know also in, in Latin America now this week we have El Salvador trying to make it a a real medium exchange official legal tender essentially. Uh, that's supposed to be a bullish indicator for crypto. And uh, what happened this week, Ben? What what was going on there? Well, I'd like to say to people, it's one thing to focus on the price of Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, but uh, sometimes people use it almost like you monitor a heartbeat. And then if there's a skip in the beat, there's big problems. Uh, perhaps the least news newsworthy piece uh, of news this week is that prices in cryptos have been volatile. And the best, uh, the best explanation I found is that a lot of people got uh, into leverage long positions thinking that the price would keep going up. And when the market turned on them, they got wiped out. It's not unusual for us to see 10% movements triggered by such events in crypto markets. But I wouldn't read too much into it. The, uh, the point that you raised there about El Salvador, it's worth perhaps delving in a little bit deep on that one because someone who's been in this space for ages, uh, the question people have asked me for years is, what happens if governments ban Bitcoin? And it turns out a far more interesting question is, what happens if governments embrace Bitcoin? And so why are we talking about El Salvador? Well, in 2001, El Salvador abandoned their fiat currency, the Colón, uh, and dollarized. So the US dollar is legal tender from then on. Well, what happened this week? El Salvador was gone and Bitcoinized. They've placed Bitcoin alongside the US dollar as the two legal tender instruments in the country. And so there's a few different angles to kind of think through why this is interesting uh, and understand what's happening in this part of the world and what might happen in the future. I'd like to share some thoughts uh, with you and your listeners today about the kind of demand side of this, to use economists speak. That is to say, why El Salvador, out of all countries in the world, why would they be the first to adopt Bitcoin as one of their legal tenders? And so the first element is they've already dollarized, yeah? They've already accepted that monetary policy is going to be set by the Fed in the United States. And so they've got much less to lose than a country that tries to run their own fiat currency. Now, they've gone and decided that they, they prefer or they'd like to have also Bitcoin's monetary policy, which is set by computers. So that's interesting of itself. The second has to do with the, uh, the Salvadorian economy. Something like the World Bank says maybe 20% of GDP is remittances for El Salvador. And uh, remittances uh, are extremely expensive if done through traditional uh, transfer agencies like Western Union. You end up finding figures like 5 to 10% in fees. And when these folks are sending money, like 5 to 10% of money of their transfers is a lot for their relatives at home. So the 1.5 million Salvadorians living in the United States who have been sending money back home by traditional outlets will now be able to use Bitcoin. Riding the Lightning Network, which is faster, cheaper, you don't have to get off the couch, pick up your cell phone to use it. Lots of El Salvadorians do not have 
bank accounts, something like 70%, but almost all of them have cell phones. Yeah? Uh, the World Bank says 130 cell phone subscriptions per 100 people, so more subscriptions than people. That's more than Japan or the United States or the United Kingdom, which are all between 100 and 110 uh, cell phone subscriptions per person. So each one of these people who doesn't have a bank has one in their pocket with Bitcoin. And so I think that these three factors coupled with a president who has been able to get things done politically, take all those factors together, and that helps us establish a framework, A, of why El Salvador, but it also helps us think about, well, which other countries are likely to follow suit if they see that the sky does not fall in El Salvador post-Bitcoinization? A lot of interesting stuff there. I mean, the in terms of the people sort of still talk about the transaction fees, I think that remittance example is a really interesting one for the, the more use case of Bitcoin and crypto. Um, people, you know, even the way a lot of people in the U.S. access it via Coinbase and some of those other apps, people talk about sort of high cost to execute. Um, how do you think that cost to, to trade is going gonna, is gonna to evolve for that local market in El Salvador? Uh, and, and, and other places who, who want to use it in that bank sort of remittances type, uh, type market? There's an extremely important development that your listeners need to be aware of. And in fact, Elon Musk was not aware of until about three months ago. Bitcoin, the base layer Bitcoin, has, has been traditionally uh, putting out transactions every 10 minutes, an upper limit of about 2,000 transactions, and then fees set by the market that can sometimes in periods of high congestion be high. Uh, in the last few years, some very smart developers have gone and built a new layer of software on top of Bitcoin called Lightning. Now, you can download a Lightning wallet right now on your cell phone. You use a blue wallet, a pine wallet, a moon wallet. Go download it and go and put some Bitcoin on it and send Bitcoin to people. It happens almost instantaneously at fees that are like fractions of US cents worth. Uh, this didn't exist four years ago or eight years ago when I started following this space. But the wallets that the Salvadorians are using, the government Chivo wallet, uh, for instance, or Strike wallet, they are all built on Lightning. So that, that fee and speed problem that used to exist uh, with Bitcoin has uh, largely been solved. And uh, this is a very good example in a way the Salvadorians are showing you how you roll out Bitcoin at a national level. And you do it using Lightning wallets. We're talking with Benjamin Dean, Director of Digital Assets of our Wisdom Tree Europe team, uh, focused on crypto. Ben, in, in what happened on Monday when there was all this volatility? I mean, you saw some things down 20, 30%. Any description of what happened there? Was it just these lever traders that there was some liquidations and then they sort of cascade downward? Any other explanation of what happened Monday and, and the rest of this week as it sort of uh, rebounded a little bit? But uh, any, any other other commentary there? Not really. I mean, as I kind of said at the opening, it's a volatile market. That's known. It's also a market that's characterized by a lot of bots trading with different strategies that uh, tend to enter into cascading spirals, uh, up or down. So it's just one of the, the things about having an immature market that's relatively new, can be extremely emotionally driven, and... Uh, when you've got information and misinformation that spreads at the speed of light via social networks and a large number of people get their information from social networks, 
not terribly surprising to me to watch this kind of price volatility. Unfortunately, it means that there's a lot of the misinformation is leading to mispricings and misallocations of capital. But over time, as space matures and better information is put out there and hopefully spread, should see the uh, volatility de- decrease. But for the moment, that's the best explanation that I've seen online, or at least that I've been able to canvas from the, the people I know who are on-chain analysts and uh, market analysts in this space. So Bitcoin is one of the, the big ones that people are focused on. Ether is, is another one. Is any developments? <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, let's talk about Ethereum. And um, there's two ways we can do this. Let's start with uh, the biggest craze that's happening in crypto land, and it's linked to Ethereum. They're things called NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Now, that's a very unsexy and overly complicated way to say digital collectibles. Uh, This space has gone absolutely wild, Uh, and it's basically people buying tokens of pictures or artwork or software code or music, what have you. And uh, on the most popular platform, just to give you an idea of the growth in the space, on the most popular platform called OpenSeas, where people exchange these NFTs, something like $3.6 billion in trades were make, made over August, which was 10 times more than the previous month. I mean, it's really just gone exponential. Now, there's two interesting elements here that you know, when these things go up so high, they tend to really cool off quickly. So I want to say two things that are kind of interesting and I think will age relatively well, uh, just to help your listeners kind of navigate this kind of crazy uh, space. The first has to do with the fact that the NFT craze has brought in all of these people to crypto who have not really done any crypto stuff before. Just anecdotally, years ago, I tried to explain Bitcoin and Ethereum to friends and anyone who I could see. Uh, My friends in creative industries, so art, music, film, they kind of looked at me blank and were like, what are you talking about? Those people came back to me this year and they're like, why didn't you tell us about this? This place is great. I've been trying to find ways to monetize my artwork or my music, and I've not been able to do so, but I'm able to post it on these websites and people turn up and buy it. They don't even talk about like the Ethereum blockchain-backed public ledger thing in the background. They've found like a real use case, and they weren't here before. So the interesting thing is a whole lot of new users from a, a space that previously really never really touched the, the crypto. The second has to do with the way in which these people are, are working together or collaborating online. So typically what you'll find is a team comes together to put together a collection of uh, NFTs, digital collectibles, and they'll come up with a theme, they'll write some computer code, generate some funny images or some interesting artwork. And uh, they'll go out there and then they'll spread the word. Uh, they'll buy some themselves. So it's very collaborative in terms of creation, distribution, publicity. And then some of these people will go and buy these non-fungible tokens and almost build like characters and stories around it uh, that they hope will in a way build up characters the same way you've traditionally seen in kind of the large movie houses and kind of things that the Disney company acquires. So you're watching this collaborative creative process occurring they found a way in which to monetize it or a few different ways in which to do it. And uh, that's extremely unique. 
when this place the space cools off, and I mean it's so white hot that at some point it has to cool off, yeah. I suspect what's going to happen is the people who are experimenting now are going to crack the nut of how to come up with sustainable financing of different kinds of creative works. And we're going to find in the next two to four years, the business models and operational models that they come up with are going to form the next wave of uh, growth and change in what we call the crypto space now, but it seems to be bleeding over into more traditional industries. I mean, you know, when brands like DC and the Chicago Bulls are putting money behind this and putting money behind creators on these NFT platforms, that's, that's a big deal. So. I mean, it's, it's amazing to see some of the, the, the prices on these NFTs. And you can see your, your point on bringing in these artists and the creator economy, you know, finding new ways to monetize their work. I mean, it seems unbelievable for that creative class as a new way of distributing their, their creative artwork or, or what, you know, wherever the future goes. Um, I mean, the prices you see on things like now you can make poke fun at gold and say gold is just this physical metal and physical rock that we could hold some gold. And it's been this currency and hedge and, and people. It's almost like this meme and joke that people are buying these NFTs of a rock, a digital rock. And the prices of these digital rocks, you know, maybe, maybe they started at like, I don't know, I don't know what, what these minting of these digital rocks were, but they're going for millions of dollars for a picture of a rock. Ether rocks. What do you what do you think about ether rocks? And then you've got these, like you know, the most popular I think have been these board ape, board ape yacht clubs and uh, you know and the crypto punks that people are using as like their avatars on Twitter and sort of like this status symbol that the rich who bought all these ethers way back in the day can just throw you know lots of ether around and and buy these these status symbols in a way. So there's one dimension to it that you just quite rightly pointed out, and it gets a lot of the attention and focus. People are buying pictures, JPEGs of rocks for silly amounts of, of air, which eventually translates back to, to US, well, whatever currency you want, really. Uh, yeah, it, it's, what you're finding is it's almost like these folks, instead of buying Rolexes, uh, so that they, that they don't even look at for the time, they just buy the Rolexes to, to be cool. Well, hey, the coolest thing right now is to go and buy a fire-breathing pirate monkey JPEG and then put it on your avatar profile and say, like, yeah, I think this is really cool. Now, there's another layer to this, though, that I don't hear people covering, which I think is, is interesting in of itself. So they went and interviewed the, the guy who was the CEO of OpenSeas, uh, the most popular platform. And he says that actually the majority of transactions that happen on the platform are for less than the equivalent of $100. So while a lot of attention is poured on the million-dollar picture of a rock because it's so outrageous and kind of farcical, on the other hand, there's all of these transactions that happen, the majority of which are relatively small ones. And, uh, you know, that, that means that, well, it's usual, it's a Pareto distribution thing there. It, it means that there is like a base there. Hmm. I wonder how long those people stick around because if there's enough of them to form a critical mass, then the space will stick around and grow. But if there's a whole bunch of people turning up and buying something just for the hell of it for $100 and then they leave, well, then that's a, that's a more negative outlook for the space. 
We have about three to four minutes left. You know, uh, for people who have listened to our show, you know, we did a really interesting podcast with uh, a gentleman, Corey Hofstein, and, and, and an online personality, Squish Chaos, on Twitter. Uh, and, and he talked about Ethereum having what he called a triple having that was, you know, sort of new protocols coming into place. And some of those protocols are now in place, what was called EIP 1559. That means, you know, there's these what's called gas fees, and these gas fees of Ether are burned. And, you know, these these are tied to transaction fees and the expense of transacting on Ethereum. Ben, any sort of quick comments on the developments you've seen, sort of future burning of Ether, sort of less supply, and so there's more demand, they're sort of bullish on the price movements. Any any other commentary on what, what you see in, in Ether there? Yeah, in many ways, it's kind of the perfect storm for Ether right now. You've got this new uh, Ether improvement protocol. It's led to a situation where when... Ether is created, it's being burned at a rate that's higher than its creation. So it's entered for the first day recently a deflationary dynamic. There's less, less Ether being created. There's crazy demand partly created by this NFT craze. And so that's driving the fees for Ether up and make it more expensive to use. So in a way, it becomes a victim of its own success, right? And the place that, that to your, for your listeners to keep an eye on right now because there's this pent-up demand to use Ethereum and the fees are so high, it's given a chance for a bunch of other Ether alternatives like Avalanche or Solana to garner new users, pinch them from Ethereum basically, and offer a solution uh, or an alternative solution that there really wasn't demand for before. Yes, yeah, Solana has been another one of those where you've got you've seen crazy price action. I mean, it's it, from the beginning of the year when people were talking about like two to three dollars a coin, and now it's like well well into the hundreds. I mean, some of the movements in these cryptos have been absolutely uh, mind boggling. Uh, sort of final closing thought, Ben, as you think about your future, what you're going to be focused on. People can find your content on the Twitter sphere. You're 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 starting to tweet out more uh, at Wisdom from, for Wisdom Tree. What what else are you going to be focused on over the coming coming months? Well, for the moment, well, now that I'm, I'm settling in here with you good folks, uh, people can find me tweeting at Benjamin Dean on Twitter. I'll be releasing blog posts periodically on whatever catches my eye. I've got a new piece coming up on the Poly Network hack, which happened a little bit ago and is interesting, kind of a signal of cybersecurity improving in the space. But keep an eye on, on my channels, keep an eye on Wisdom, Wisdom Tree's blog uh, space, because as I'm putting out content, you'll get a feel for what's catching my eye and what's interesting in this space as we go forward. Well, thanks for taking some time from Happy Hour in London to come join us on Behind the Markets. Uh, you've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Thanks to Patty Hall, our producer, Dion Simpkins, our sound engineer. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 